You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about kidney stones. Joining me today is Dr. Gregory Tazian, an attending urologist at CHOP as well, but also an assistant professor of urology and assistant professor of epidemiology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. So thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning. It's a pleasure. So when I was in medical school, we didn't talk too much about renal stones in children, it was more of an adult disease, but I've been hearing more and more about it and I hear that they're becoming more common. So how prevalent are they in children and why are we seeing more of them? So I think we attended some of the same lectures in medical school. Mm -hmm. Um, Historically, when you think of stones, it was a disease of white middle-aged men. And then over the last 20 years, we've seen a shift in the epidemiology where stones are becoming much more common among women. And then the group in whom stones are increasing at the highest rate are among adolescents, Mm -hmm. particularly adolescent females. Um, So overall, about 10% of the U.S. population will have uh, a stone at some point in their life. And the group in whom that rate is growing at the fastest uh, speed are among adolescents. Um, Over the last 20 years, the probability of having a stone before the age of 18 has approximately doubled. Wow. And do we know why that's happening? So I think when you're looking at kidney stones, you really want to think about it as a disease that may be influenced by a number of different factors. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of those are individual characteristics, our genetic makeup, Mm -hmm. our age, our sex, uh, and then how that intersects with other exposures such as behaviors, including diet, fluid intake, and then what um, we call the exposome, all those environmental influences and exposures, whether it be temperature or medications, mm-hmm. um, and how they all come together and together determine that risk of forming a stone. Mm-hmm. You mentioned temperature, so tell us more. I thought this was really interesting about the effect of temperature on developing stones. So for, for years, for decades, uh, we've known that there's a stone belt in the United States where the highest prevalence of stones is in the southeastern U.S., uh, probably beginning in South Carolina, going over to Tennessee, areas that uh, have extremely hot summers. Um, but what we have gained an understanding of over the last uh, probably about five years is that uh, the daily temperatures have an important bearing on when uh, patients develop stones and how quickly they may present with them afterwards. Mm -hmm. So as temperatures increase, there's an increase in the risk of presenting with a kidney stone very shortly after uh, those high uh, temperatures. Mm -hmm. And there's a slight increase in the risk at low temperatures too. Mm -hmm. 
uh, is probably related to uh, the amount of urine uh, that you make. So at high heat, you lose more uh, through sweat and insensible loss. And then at low temperatures, because the humidity is lower, you lose more uh, water through respiration. Mm. So all that influences uh, your urine volume. And in low urine volume, all the minerals that form stones, such as calcium and oxalate and phosphorus, are at higher concentrations, mm -hmm. uh, thereby increasing the probability that a stone would form. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Um, so in primary care, how might a child with a stone present to us? What should we be uh, looking out for to put stones in our differential? So kidney stones in older patients, in older post-pubescent adolescents, will largely present as they would in adulthood. Mm -hmm. Flank pain, nausea, vomiting, maybe gross hematuria. Mm -hmm. In younger children, and this is an important age group, um, the signs may be more subtle. Uh, it may be generalized abdominal pain. Mm -hmm. uh, it may just be gross hematuria. Mm -hmm. uh, so when there are those signs or those symptoms, uh, and there are important uh, positives in the history, such as a family history of stones, a personal history of stones in that patient, mm -hmm. high-risk medications such as topiramate or other carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, at that point, I would elevate uh, stones in the differential mm -hmm. and obtain an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned some risk factors for developing stones, so family history, obviously personal history. Are there other things that we should be thinking about? You said some medications. Medications can be an important factor. Um, so a lot of the medications taken for seizure disorder, mm -hmm. uh, topiramate probably being one of the, the highest risk medications, ketogenic diet, mm -hmm. uh, some of the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors such as onisamide. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there are more common um, either supplements or medications that could increase the risk. Um, the calcium supplementation has been shown to increase the risk of stones in adulthood. Mm -hmm. Studies haven't been done in childhood, but there's no reason to think that it would be different. Mm -hmm. Vitamin D is something where there uh, is uncertainty. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are the emerging um, areas such as antibiotic exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the work that we're doing in our group has demonstrated that there's an increased risk of uh, kidney stone disease with certain antibiotics, and that that risk is greater when those antibiotics are prescribed earlier in life. Is that because of a changing microbiome? Presumably. Really interesting. So when we do have a patient who's in clinic and we're suspecting a stone, what sort of workup should we do in the outpatient area? So I think establishing the diagnosis is the most important. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that is with a, a kidney bladder ultrasound. Mm -hmm. So ultrasound has uh, very high sensitivity for detecting stones that are in the kidney, slightly lower if the stone is moved down into the ureter, mm -hmm. uh, but it's still the first line study that should be obtained. Mm -hmm. And should we be collecting urine as well, or is that not as helpful? I think uh, in the initial evaluation, getting a urinalysis may help um, you determine if stones should be in your differential. If there's microhematuria, uh, it increases the probability. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, when we're looking at reducing the risk of recurrence, we're going to be doing a metabolic evaluation in our kidney stone center, mm -hmm. and that involves uh, doing a 24-hour uh, collection of urine, right. and then that is looking for risk factors such as hypercalciuria, hypocitruturia, the uh, urine volume, mm -hmm. and then you can target both dietary uh, recommendations as well as medical uh, treatment, depending on what the dominant risk factor is. Great, but that's after they, they already know they have a
have a stone, so we can defer most of that to you usually. You, you can, but I, I believe firmly that uh, one, kidney stones uh, are a disease of mineral metabolism and that it's much greater than just the stone with which they present mm -hmm. because it's associated with an increased risk of hypertension, increased risk of chronic kidney disease mm -hmm. among adults, and increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So we need to think about this as a medical community mm -hmm. and not just in isolation within urology and surgery. Um, so I think the more that we can partner um, and provide a, a home for these children, adolescents, and ultimately young adults, mm -hmm. the better we're able to decrease the burden of disease across a lifespan. Right. You mentioned um, kind of working together collaboratively. So there are certain medical conditions that make stones more likely, like metabolism, I'm thinking. So mm -hmm. in which kids should we be having a higher suspicion of stones or maybe getting urology involved earlier? So there's certainly uh, both inborn errors in metabolism, uh, as well as anatomic risk factors mm -hmm. that increase the complexity of disease. So for example, patients with spina bifida mm -hmm. are, are going to have a higher risk of forming stones, likely due to immobility and uh, decreased bone mineral density and hypercalciuria. Mm -hmm. um, many times they have a reconstructed urinary tract, which makes uh, both the diagnosis and treatment complex. Mm -hmm. Um, then you have inborn errors in metabolism, which are typically the rarer type of stones, such as cystinuria mm -hmm. or primary hyperoxaluria. Mm -hmm. Usually these patients are already within the urology and nephrology community, right. but certainly if there's ever a patient that's diagnosed, um, we're, we're, we're certainly here uh, to partner in the care of these children. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so once we've discovered that a child does have a stone on ultrasound, where should we be sending them? So how do we know when they go to the emergency department and um, maybe won't be able to pass the stone on their own versus when they could follow up in clinic? So it, most of the times when patients find out they have stones is because they're having pain. Mm -hmm. And before it was unrecognized because it was silent. So the times where patients go to the emergency room and when, or when they're having these pains, mm -hmm. it's a good way of establishing a diagnosis, but we want to keep patients out of the emergency room right. if at all possible. Um, so if they have uh, a suspected stone or a confirmed stone on ultrasound, mm -hmm. call the urology uh, division at CHOP. Mm -hmm. And if this patient is uh, able to keep fluids down, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't have profound vomiting, mm -hmm. uh, the pain is well controlled, mm -hmm. I would much prefer seeing him in the clinic than having him go to an emergency room, right. particularly an emergency room outside of the CHOP network where they may be more likely to get a CT scan. Right. Um, so always, um, I, we're available in urology for these referrals. Mm -hmm. Great. How often do stones recur and how can we counsel patients about reducing that risk? So among adults, the risk of recurrence is about 50% in the 5 to 10 years after that initial stone. Mm -hmm. uh, what we've seen in childhood is that risk may be even greater. Mm -hmm. So about 50% within three years of having the initial stone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all consistent with when you have a disease that begins earlier in life, it may be a more severe form of the disease. Mm -hmm. um, so it's essential for any patient who's had uh, even one stone in childhood that they have that initial metabolic evaluation so we can understand what the risks for recurrence are mm -hmm. so we can intervene to reduce that risk. Mm -hmm. And this may be a silly question since you're a urologist, but when should we send a patient to nephrology versus urology who has a history of stones? 
So I think it's an excellent question. And I think urology and nephrology complement each other uh, in many ways. And that was really one of the impetus, uh, the, the, the strongest impetus for forming the Kidney Stone Center at CHOP mm-hmm. is that we recognize that as surgeons, urologists are uh, largely focused on treating the acute episode. Mm-hmm. And then in nephrology, um, largely focused on understanding the me- metabolism of stone disease mm-hmm. and uh, reducing recurrence through medications. Mm-hmm. So in our stone center, uh, we have urologists and nephrologists seeing patients simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And those are the patient, the patients that benefit most from that are those with complex disease, mm-hmm. um, with anatomic abnormalities, mm-hmm. inborn errors of metabolism, and those that have had recurrent stones. Mm-hmm. Um, so that resource is here. Um, and then uh, both urologists and nephrologists would see patients independently, but our goal is to integrate care. Great. Um, we touched a little bit on the fact that diet and obviously hydration play a big role. So are there specific diets that are recommended or that should be avoided in order for, to prevent kidney stones? So I think uh, one of the healthiest diets uh, is the DASH diet. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the diet to prevent hypertension among adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been shown to reduce the risk of recurrence among adult stone formers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the same principles would apply for children, although those trials haven't been done. Mm-hmm. I think one of the um, areas of the biggest misconception about diet and stone risk is the uh, calcium content of mm-hmm. the diet. Um, there's a there's a prevailing belief that if you have a high calcium diet, you're at higher risk for stones. Mm-hmm. In fact, the opposite is true. Yeah. Um, so if you have a moderate to high dietary calcium intake, your risk of stone disease is lower. And that's probably based on the fact that calcium complexes with oxalate in the gut and then thereby reduces oxalate excretion in the kidney. Um, So for bone health, uh, as well as reduction of stone risk, uh, maintaining a high calcium intake is important. Fluid intake is also critical. Um, It's really the least expensive, most effective way we have of reducing uh, stone recurrence. Mm -hmm. And we recognize that it's hard for patients to do that, which is why uh, we're participating in leading the uh, prevention of urinary stones with hydration trial. Right, so tell us more, that's the PUSH trial. Tell us more about what that is and, and what happens. So the PUSH trial is a randomized trial that's supported by the uh, NIH. Mm -hmm. And the goal is uh, to provide a strategy for patients to maintain a high fluid intake Mm -hmm. um, and meet that urine output goal that would reduce the risk of stones. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it includes both adolescents and adults, recognizing that stone disease exists across a lifespan. Mm -hmm. Um, And any adolescent uh, or adult who has had a stone and has low urine volume is eligible. So we're testing uh, whether the strategy of technology, including a Bluetooth water bottle, a fluid prescription, financial incentives, and health coaching, Mm -hmm. uh, the combination of those, uh, whether or not that can decrease the risk of recurrence. Mm -hmm. The Bluetooth water bottle is a really cool idea. And I've seen some of these on the market, too, that people can buy, that they're water bottles that remind them to drink. So... Um, how much should kids drink throughout the day and how, how could we counsel them if they weren't in the trial to maintain adequate hydration? So it, it's really remarkable how underhydrated uh, children and adolescents are. Um, there was a study that came out a few years ago um, that estimated that approximately 75% of children in the United States aren't meeting their adequate uh, mm-hmm. daily water intake. 
And the best guidelines that exist are from the um, Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, which gives guidelines on adequate uh, water intake. Mm -hmm. And that's based on age and sex. Mm -hmm. um, so I would refer anyone to those guidelines, mm -hmm. whether or not they're stone former or not, uh, because uh, certainly as a, a, as a population, we're underhydrated. Mm -hmm. Great. Some people use the color of their urine as a guide. Is that reliable or not? I, I use it for my patients yeah. uh, who are not in the trial and say every time that you urinate, you should have clear urine. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's yellow or if it's an orange mm -hmm. or, or if it's orange, you're not drinking enough. Right. Okay. So um, I love hearing about the collaborative team approach in the Pediatric Kidney Stone Center. So how can we um, in the community refer patients to you? And if we have questions about our patients with stones, where can we reach your team. So anyone is always um, uh, able to contact me directly. Mm -hmm. um, myself and Larry Kopovich head up the Stone Center here. Uh, Dr. Kopovich is a nephrologist. Mm -hmm. uh, my email address uh, is tajng at chop.edu. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, the, the number for the Stone Center is area code 215-590-2754. That'll reach the urology clinic. And then uh, along with nephrology, we coordinate the Stone Center visits. Great. And does urology have offices that are out in the community and not uh, separate from the main hospital? Absolutely. So uh, urologists, my partners and I uh, go to uh, Brandywine, uh, Voorhees, King of Prussia, um, Mays Landing, uh, Princeton, so uh, all the specialty care centers within the CHOP network. And I'm excited to uh, announce that we just opened uh, a kidney stone center uh, within KOP. Uh, so we now provide both joint urology and nephrology visits there. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been super helpful. I know it's something that we're all seeing a lot more of. Everyone's eager to learn more about kidney stones since we did not get that education in med school um, and residency sometimes. So we're happy to have you helping us and helping our patients. Happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.